Well, this week the tech team got a soundboard exorcist in here (laughs) and cast the demon out. We tried it out last service and it worked just fine. In George Lucas's Star Wars blockbuster, The Empire Strikes Back, Luke Skywalker is out to confront uh, the evil servant and master of the dark side, Darth Vader, who he was told killed his father. And uh, I remember watching this for the first time. I think it was, you know, 1978 or something. It was a, it was a while back. Um, but anyways, he, he fails to beat Darth Vader. And with his life hanging in the balance, Darth Vader tries to persuade Skywalker to come to the dark side. And... And what he hopes will be kind of some leverage to get Skywalker to turn to the dark side. He says to Luke, no one ever told you the truth about what really happened to your father. And then I remember everybody in the theater gasping when this classic all-time line came down and he said, I am your father. I was like, no! I mean, you don't want someone like that to be your father. A bloodthirsty killer, deceptive, wicked representative of evil to be your father. And understandably so. We'll turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We're going to end up in Luke 11 eventually, but this relates and you'll see why here in a minute. John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus is speaking to some Jews who believe in him to a degree, but not into salvation. They believe that Jesus has performed miracles, hard to deny. They believe that maybe Jesus is even the Messiah. But they haven't placed saving faith in Jesus. They haven't repented of their sins and trusted Christ alone to save them yet. And as we work through the text, I want you to keep an eye out, an ear out for what Jesus says defines us as a child of God. What makes a person a child of God? So here we go. John chapter 8, verse 31 and following. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. 
And notice it is at this point that Jesus makes it clear that his father, God, is not their father. They have a different one. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So now they're switching. And they say, well, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And at this point, he reveals to them the cold, chilling truth, which I'm sure made them gasp. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them. Because you are not of God. Now you may be sitting out there thinking, so what does this have to do with the disciples' prayer? Remember, Jesus said you should say, Father. But the only way you can say, Father, in the way Jesus means in Luke chapter 11, is if God is your Father. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior, God is not your Father. You have another Father. And you can't pray our Father who is in heaven. And Jesus gives this checklist in his discussion with the Pharisees to let them know what it really means to have God as your father. And I'm just going to summarize quickly. One, if you continue in Jesus' word, what does that mean? That means you continue to read, study, learn, meditate on the scriptures and seek to apply the word of God to your life. Are you doing that? If you are, good chance you are a child of God. Secondly, you know God is your father if you know the truth. This is not to be confused with knowing facts about the Bible. Knowing gospel stories or Bible stories or having a grasp of biblical content. The word know means to have an experiential knowledge of something. Do you remember what Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.19 as he he begins to pray? He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, uh, you know, from whom heaven and earth derive its name. And then he starts going down and and he gets to verse 19 and he says, and that you would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now think about that. How does that work? How can you know Something which is beyond knowledge. What he's really saying is, is I am praying that you experience the love of Christ, which surpasses the ability of the human mind and mouth 
to articulate. You see, really, when you start talking about knowing God, when God comes into your life, when you are saved, when you receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to illumine God's truth in your life, you just can't even explain it. I mean, you you can only kind of explain it by describing the effect. Just last night, we got a call from uh, Lisa's step mother who said she went to a women's retreat and she came back and she says and i'm reading my bible and it's like everything has changed it's like i can understand it now it's like it all makes sense one week a mystery the next week it's all coming true it's just clear it's what happened have you experienced that That's what it means to know the truth. You're reading the Bible. And and though you don't understand everything as well as you wish you did. Oh man, there's nuggets in there. You're convicted. You're encouraged. You're motivated. You're just, you're just odd. It's just, man, this is cool. But if you don't know, know Christ, you don't know that. You don't understand that. You, you read the Bible and you may go through the stories and it may be a ritual, but you don't know the truth like that. Third, you know you are a child of God if the truth has set you free. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means multiple things. One is it sets you free, first of all, from the eternal consequences of your sin. You're not going to hell anymore. Secondly, it sets you free to begin to obey God. You know, before you come to Christ, you can't obey God. There's nothing that you can do that pleases God. But now, in understanding the truth... In knowing the truth, you are set free by the truth, not only escaping hell, but being able to live for the glory of God. And not only that, all those lies, those deceptions, those delusions that you thought were true, but were false. And all of these truths you thought were false, but were true. All like, whoa, was I dumb? Was I ignorant? Was I deceived? Was I just going along? I just didn't see. And that's what Jesus means. Paul describes this in Romans 6 as being freed to walk in newness of life. Or of being dead to sin. Or of sin no longer being master over you. Or of being under grace. Or of being freed from sin to become slaves of righteousness. He describes it in a lot of different ways. There's just a transformation. You don't keep continuing in your sin. You stop. And yes, you may sin and you may go up and down, but there is a progression of holiness that you now have strength. You have the resources to overcome sin. In 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16, Paul explains that the consequences of salvation make it so we can know the truth as the Holy Spirit illumines it in our heart. And it just isn't just a knowledge thing, but it is an experience thing. You have an experience when you get into the word. And you're just, it just blesses your soul. You just read the Bible and you just think, man, this is so good. You're just freed up from all of that darkness and deception that once held you. And four, you know you are a child of God if you listen to God and not the world. This is what the child of God does when something comes up, when there's an emergency, when they don't know what to do. They run to God's word. They run to God in prayer. They run to God. 
They, they, they don't run to friends unless those friends are going to tell them what God says. They don't run to books unless those books explain to them what God says. They don't go to the psychologists or the psychiatrists who reject God or who twist what God says or who only believe part of what God says. You know, the Bible says God created the earth in, in six literal 24-hour periods. And all these people say, well, no, that's that. Well, who are you going to believe, God or men? That's just what it comes down to. God says sexual immorality will destroy you. It will ruin your life. It will cause you grief. You're going to believe God or you're going to believe the world? That it's okay. It's just a biological thing. It's no big deal. God or the world? God says lying is wrong and cheating is wrong and, you know, all these different things we know that he sets in there. The question is, is do you believe that? The Christian believes that implicitly. You may not even understand how it fits. You may not understand how it all works together. You just go, well, how do dinosaurs fit into there? Okay, you don't know, but God says that I'm believing it. That's what a Christian does. And we're not talking about an ignorant faith. There's answers in a whole other sermon. But you believe God's truth. And five, you know you are a Christian. And this is probably the most certain way to know you're a Christian. If you love Jesus. If you love Jesus. You know, this is the easiest way to tell that you are a child of God, but the hardest way for other people to see that you are a child of God. But you can go through all the external trappings of Christianity and yet be a Judas. Yet you know in your heart if you love Jesus or not. When you want to do his will, you strive to do his will, you long to do his will, you long to please him. And you know what? You don't long to please him because you've got to be good so he'll let you into heaven. You know you're going to heaven. It just grieves you when... Knowing that he saved you, knowing you're going to heaven, you just are grieved because, man, I blow it so many times, Lord, I am just so sorry. If that's your experience, then you know you love Jesus. You, You know, what if the rapture were to happen right now? I mean, we're all sitting here and we're all smiling and, you know, somebody sent me that video clip of the guy preaching and all of a sudden, you know, they're bang, you know, and the preacher disappears and his Bible hits the ground and the camera pans out. There's like three people there all terrified. And, you know, what if that happened just right now? One moment you're sitting here and the next moment you're either gone or you're still sitting here. Those are the two options. Does that scare you? then you probably don't love Jesus. If the thought of Jesus coming back scares you, then you don't know him and love him because that is like the best thought. Hardly a day goes by when I say, no, Lord, this would be a good time to come back today. You think of being in heaven and of seeing Jesus and just being freed from sin and worshiping the angels. It's not a matter of being saved. You know you're saved. You just love Jesus. You just can't wait. And every day you're kind of disappointed as you're going to bed and you're falling asleep on your pillow. And you're thinking, oh, if you could just come now before I fall asleep so I can be awake when it happens. (laughs) And if that's you, then you love Jesus. But if you're kind of sitting there, oh, I hope he doesn't come back now, then you don't love him. And you're saying, okay, Jack, all right, all right, you've gone on here. What's the deal? I mean, 
what does this all mean? Well, it means because you won't repent of your sins, because you won't have Jesus reigning over your life, because you're only kind of a Sunday Christian and part Christian, which is a non-Christian, you're really siding with Satan against your creator, which means that Satan is really your father. As, as ghastly, as terrifying, as chilling, as horrendous as that may be, and you may say, no, like Luke Skywalker, it's true. It's true. You know, a lot of times we have in our mind that whether they're the children of God, the worshipers, the servers, the lovers of God over here, and then over here there's the people who meet at midnight in basements and out in the middle of fields and sacrifice cats and, you know, whatever, Satan worshipers. And then there's this whole group of humanity in the middle who are just, you know, they're not saved, but they're certainly not of Satan. But that's not true. There are those who are of God a very few, and then the many, all the rest, who are of their father, the devil. And those are the only two groups. And you know, I would hate to mislead you, to make you think as we go through the disciples' prayer, that this prayer is for you, and this prayer will enhance your prayer life if you don't know Jesus. It will not. Thousands, millions around the world pray every day to the Father and He never hears them. You know, God will not even listen to the prayer of a believer if they have unconfessed sin in their life. David says in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Solomon said in Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. And in verse 29, Solomon writes, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Or Proverbs 29, or 28, 9, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Or the man who is healed by Jesus, and we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Now, you may out there and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, no one's perfect. Even Christians sin. And, you know, I'm not wicked. You're you trying to say I'm wicked? No, I'm saying you are wicked. I'm not trying. <laughs> there are none righteous, not even one. There are none who understand. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Their mouth is an open grave. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's God's description of all of us. Not some of us. And don't ever get into the, the thought that, well, there's a certain group of extra righteous people who are extra good, and therefore God says, well, because you're righteous, I'm going to give you the permission to pray to me. That is the doctrine of Satan. The truth is, is we're bad and Christ is good. We do what's wrong and Christ does what is right. He died in the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And he earns those who place their faith in him the privilege of approaching the throne of grace. But if you don't know Jesus and you just talk about knowing Jesus and act like you know Jesus and pretend to know Jesus and those criteria we went through are not true of you, then as chilling as it may seem and as maybe socially unacceptable and politically incorrect and even if it makes you angry 
you, you are of your father, the devil, and you are deluded. Because if you will not have Jesus reigning over your life, then you're rejecting God as your father. And so you can't pray our father who is in heaven because he's not. And one of the greatest fears I have is that someone would come in here and hear the gospel preached week after week and die and realize they worshipped the wrong father. Your blood is not going to be on my head because I've told you the truth. And if you're out there and thinking, oh man, I just don't want to give up my sin, then what you're saying is, I don't want God as my father. That's it. It's either walk away from your sin, repent of your sin, and place your faith in the person and work of Christ alone to save you, or you have Satan as your father. And so may it be written and may it be recorded and fixed in all of our minds as we work through the disciples' prayer, that the disciples' prayer is for Jesus' disciples, not for those who profess to be his disciples only. It grieves me to think that some of you might try to get your prayer life fixed when you haven't got your relationship with God fixed, because that must come first. With that, let us see how God's children are to pray. We have learned that Jesus is the ultimate example of being devoted to prayer. And we should follow in his footsteps. Secondly, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should want to learn how to pray to the glory of God. And third, you should address your prayers to your heavenly father. Look at Luke 11 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 4. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Then he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us this day, each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Well, there we go. This morning I want to give you one bullet. One, this is just a one-pointer. And it is the grand purpose and motive that should drive all of our prayer life. This is the concept, this is the great overarching theme, this is the thing that filters all of our prayers, that guides all of our prayers, that all of our prayers must point to this huge thing, and here it is, that the Father's name would be hallowed. The second thing Jesus says his disciples should say when they pray, and the first request Jesus tells us to make or pray is found in the middle of verse 2. Jesus says, Say, Father, and here's the first request, hallowed be your name. Now, when you look at that, most of you probably, you know, you probably don't use hallowed in your conversation. I mean, about the only other time is when we talk about Halloween. I mean, we just don't use that term. 
And, you know, it, it does kind of relate. Halloween is a day when people set aside reverence or respect a certain day, dressed up in costumes, try and fetch candy. You know, if you're a Satan worshiper, worship demons or saints or whatever. Um, it is to hallow, to set aside a day to do Halloween things. Well... Christians are not to hallow the dead or hallow saints or angels or demons or fictitious characters, but they are to hallow God's name. That is, they are to literally take something and make it holy or set it apart as holy or set it apart to some sacred end is what it means. And notice that Jesus is telling us exactly what we should pray. He is saying, I want you to address with intimacy your heavenly father, your daddy in heaven, so to speak. And I want you to speak to him. And the first thing, and it's no mistake that it comes first. The first thing out of your mouth is to be father. Could you cause or bring about or make happen the hallowing of your name. And this tells us what the first priority of prayer is. That God's name would be hallowed. We all know what a name is. We all have names and some of us have nicknames. As a matter of fact, growing up as the youngest of eight children, I have quite a few nicknames. Somebody asked me one time, do you have any nicknames? And I just started rattling them off, skipping the ones which were unwholesome. (laughs) But you know, that's uh, nicknames even describe little characteristics that we have. You know, Satan, for instance, is called the dragon of old, a reference to his temptation of Eve as a serpent in the garden. He he is called the God of this world because he is the one now who is ruling and overseeing the world forces of darkness and this evil world system. He is called the deceiver because he deceives people. But no matter what name you use of Satan, you're speaking of all of him, right? I mean, when you say the deceiver, what comes to your mind is Satan as a whole, not a part. Well, the same is true of God. When you speak of a name of God, yes, God has many names. You know, you could call him Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. But when you say that, yes, you may be emphasizing his the fact that he is a God who provides. But you're really speaking of God in the whole. Everything God is. All his characteristic attributes and works are all lumped into his name. So when Jesus says, you should pray, I want You, Father, to cause everything you are and all that you do to be set apart in people's lives and to be thought of, treated, respected, reverenced as holy. That's what he's getting at. The Jews really respected the name of God far more than we do. Many Christians use the Lord's name in vain or use little minor adjustments to it so they can still almost not use his name in vain, but everybody knows what they mean by what they say. The Jews wouldn't even use the memorial name of God. They respected, made holy, hallowed the name Yahweh so 
much that what they did is, is whenever they got to the, that, the, you know, when it's called the inevitable tetragrammaton, the unutterable four letter name, Yahweh, they would just say the name. Or they would substitute Adonai or something else, but they wouldn't even want to speak it. They respected God's name so much that they thought, you know, we'd never want to mispronounce it. We'd never want to stumble through it. We'd never want to just even do any little thing that might just taint it at all. And so we're not even going to say it. I mean, that's how much they respected the name of God. Yes, to pray that God's name would be hallowed or made holy is to pray that every part of God's being, every, every work, every act of God would be reverenced, set apart, treated as special, as sacred. In Isaiah 8.13, we read, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. You should regard him as holy. That is, you should set him apart in your life as sacred. In Isaiah 29, 23, we read, But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. That's what it means to sanctify God, to just to have awe for God. In Ezekiel 36, 23, God speaks to Ezekiel and says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which I have profaned in their, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And what he means by that is when I wipe them out and when I judge you, then you're going to know that I am a God who is holy and just. And I punish sin. Do you remember when Moses, um, you know, went up on the mountain and saw the burning bush? And, he, you know, he sees the bush and he walks up to it. And you remember what God says? He says, remove the sandals from your feet because the ground on which you tread is holy ground. Now, that is interesting. Dirt. Rocks. Holy You go to Zechariah 14, if you've read there in your quiet time recently. Zechariah 14, 9 is about the second coming. The whole chapter is. But in in verse 9, we read, And the Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. That is, all that God is and all that God does will be the only discussion topic. That's gonna, he's gonna be the focus. And in verses 20 and 21, it speaks of some really amazing things that are going to be holy to the Lord. He says this, and in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bulls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. Now, how does that work? How do you get dirt Rocks, little bells, pots, pans. How do you get all those things to be holy? I mean, you know, do you throw holy water on them? How do you make something holy? That is the question. When Jesus comes back, Zachariah is saying everything, even down to the little bells and pots and pans are going to be holy, man. Everything's going to be holy. Everything's going to be hallowed unto God. 
Well, let's say you're a junior higher or high schooler and you got yourself a new iPod or some new cool cell phone or some other little gadget. I mean, how do you treat that? It's like really careful. Be careful. Be careful. Don't drop it. Don't drop it. I mean, you don't leave it outside on the lawn so the sprinklers can water it. And if you do, you cry for a couple days. You take care of it. You put it in this little pouch and little cubby hole and you take real good care of it. Why? Because it's valuable to you. You, you, you treat it as holy. You're setting it apart as something special. You know, I have a whole bunch of tools in my garage and they fit in little pouches and little cases and little pegs. They have little spots for things. And, you know, my whole garage is like, you know, the temple to tool. And I put all those things in there because I don't want them outside. I don't want them to get stolen. I don't want to get rained on and turn rusty. And so I kind of have this area, you know, set apart for them. And so you can set apart dirt and rocks and bells and bulls and tools as unto the Lord. As a matter of fact, that's what Jesus is getting at. I mean, even your body, you remember what Paul said in Romans 12.1? You need to offer your, your body as a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice to God. What a, hallow your body unto God is what he's saying. That's what you're to do. You're setting them aside. You know, you can go down and you can, you know, pound down a cheeseburger and sin while you're doing it. But you remember what Paul said? Everything is sanctified by the means of what? The word of God and prayer. If it passes with the word of God and you thank God for it in prayer and you say, Lord, thank you for this cheeseburger, this double-double, animal style, you know, thank you for this thing and I am going to eat it now and it's going to be good and I pray that it strengthens me and nourishes me that I might serve you and you eat it, it's hallowed. You've got yourself a hallowed cheeseburger. But if you instead just go, oh, I'm hungry, and mow it down, then you just sinned. Why? Because life is about giving what? Glory to God. Glory to God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so if you eat, drink, or do anything that's not for His glory, then you're missing the whole purpose for why everything exists. Really, when you get down to it, you can boil all of this down into this. When you're asking God to hallow his name, what you're really saying is how that prayer is answered, what that looks like when the prayer is answered for God's name to be hallowed is that everything would bring God glory. You know, like the Westminster Confession says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of creation and the rocks and all all that has been made? The glory of God. So anything that fits outside of that fits outside of its created purpose. And so when you are praying, hallowed be your name, you're really saying, God, get glory in everything. That's what that's what it looks like. Now, this is something critical in prayer. And I'm going to remind you of this in the weeks to come. Whenever you pray for something, you need to 
Do what you can do to bring that prayer to pass. In other words, you don't say, you know, God, I just wish that a lot of people would come to Christ and that they would be saved and our church would just be filled full of new converts and they would be discipled and grow and just, oh man, it would be so great. And then not share your faith with anybody, not disciple anybody and not do anything about it. It'd be like sitting on your porch, you know, you're, you're reading some book and all of a sudden you, you, you hear this, this kid go, and you look up and just the kid runs out and this car just whacks the kid and knocks it into the gutter and the car doesn't even know it's hit the kid and keeps going and the kid's there bleeding, blood gushing out of its head and your first thought is, Lord, I just pray that someone would call 911 and there would be a quick response and then you go back to reading your book. No, you get up. You call 911. You go rescue the kid. You do something. You don't just pray. You pray and then act on the prayer. Now, sometimes, you you know, there's nothing you can do. And so you just pray and leave it in. But if you can do something, then do something about what you're praying about. You always align yourself. Now, try and get this. So if we are to pray that God's name is hallowed and what that translates into as far as the application of it or the fulfillment of God bringing that prayer to pass is that his name would be glorified in everything then what that means is is when you pray what you're really asking the father to do is to cause you and everybody else to give him glory in all things that's what it gets down to and you get that little gem in your Head, it will radically transform your prayer life. Now, we tend to be pretty selfish in our prayers. I, you know, and I don't even think people realize it. I don't think, you know, people go, well, it's time to be selfish, so I'm going to pray. I think for most of you, you're probably thinking, well, God tells me to pray. To ask him for things. God says it's good for me. I need to do it. You know, I, there's things I have no control. I'm just going to go to God and pray about everything. And so I pray to God and he hears me. And as long as I don't have unconfessed sin in my life. And, you know, that's what's going to happen. And, you know, God's going to do what he's going to do. And I'm going to pray. And and yet a lot of times when we pray, it never enters our mind that The primary purpose of prayer is that God's name would be hallowed, that he would be glorified in all the fulfillment of what is prayed for. Now, that is kind of a huge uh, alter-aiding truth to how we should pray. You know, when you start looking at prayer as... Prayer is so God can get what he wants. It's not so that we can get what we want. Prayer is about your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will. Prayer is about God getting glorified. Thomas Watson in his exposition of the Lord's Prayer says, To hallow is to set apart a thing from the common use to a sacred end. Well, you know, let me just ask you this. Do you think God wants us to set aside a couple hours a week on Sunday morning for sacred purposes and then the rest of the week we could do what we want? 
Or do you think God wants us to set aside, yeah, a couple hours on Sunday, kind of a concentrated dose. And then it may be during the week, if we just at least have one time during the day where we give him glory, then he's fine with that. Or do you think that maybe God wants us to give him glory all the time? I think you know the answer. He wants us to give him glory in everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. It's not just a part-time thing, giving glory to God. If you're going to fulfill the purpose of your existence, then your purpose of existence is to glorify God. Thomas Watson goes on to, for pages and pages, explaining how we hollow God's name by giving him glory. And here is a just, you know, this is a whole series of sermons, which is just packed in here, but I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read the, t- the, the titles. Then as I do, just notice how comprehensive these are. First, we hollow God's name by professing his name. Second, by having the highest thoughts, appreciation, and esteem for God. Third, by trusting him. Four, by speaking God's name with reverence. Five, by loving him. Six, by worshiping him. Seven, by setting aside a day to worship him. Eight, by giving him honor for all we do. Nine, by obeying him. Ten, by praising him. Eleven, by sympathizing with him when his name is not glorified. Twelve, by honoring Jesus as much as the Father. Thirteen, by standing up for God's truth. Fourteen, by evangelizing the lost. Fifteen, by honoring God's name before all other things. And sixteen, by having God-honoring conversation. Now, if you can think of something that fits outside of there, I don't know what it is. But you know what? You just boil it all down. It just means in everything in your life, give glory to God. And as you begin to study prayer and you begin to look at what Jesus is saying there, you're going, no wonder why Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done. No wonder why John says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. No wonder why Paul said in Romans 8, and we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. It's almost like the whole purpose of prayer is to give God glory. Bingo! It's not so you can get what you want. I'm sorry, Americans. It's not about getting what you want. Now, does this mean that we should not ask God about any everything? No, the Bible says pray about all things in everything by prayer. So yes, you pray about everything for the purpose of who? God getting what he wants, not you getting what you want. You know, you have a loved one who's sick. You see them hurting, they're suffering. Maybe their life is hanging in the balance. And so you pray. What is your motive? You know, is your motive um, who you love, who you want to be healed, what you want to happen with this person and how you desire to have them be healed so your will can be done. That is not having God as the priority of your prayer. That's having you as the priority of your prayer. Because you're really praying that your will would be done on earth. But you can have the same situation, the same fears, the same desires, and you can pray all those things. And then at the end, you can say, Lord, but not my will. Thine be done. And when you say that to God, what you're really saying is, Lord, listen, 
I don't know what your plan is, but I'm praying and I want it all to line up with what you want. And so feel free to deny, cancel and nullify anything I have just asked for. Because I want what you want. And if it's your will that they die, if it's your will that they suffer, if it's your will that they get better, then I'm going to praise you. Because I know, regardless of what I pray, since I only want what you want, and since your spirit intercedes according to your will, whatever I get, I'm going to praise you for, because that is the answer to the prayer. And so we must be willing to have God and His way override, control, direct influence all of our prayers. Now, the last two weeks, I've challenged you to try and devote at least 10 minutes a a day to prayer. And I know some of you have, you know, have even come up to me and said, man, I want you to know, man, I'm having problems. You know, I I don't know. You know, and, and it may be what we talked about earlier. Maybe you're trying to improve upon something and you're just praying to granite because you don't know God. You just know about him. You just know facts about the gospel. You know Bible truths. You attend church, but you don't really know God. But if you do know God, I want to encourage you to keep praying at least 10 minutes a day. This is homework for Calvary Bible Church. We're trying to get into the habit of faithful prayer where at least 10 minutes a day you have some uninterrupted time with God. I don't care what time it is, but when people aren't talking to you, when your cell phones turn off, when you're not going to answer the door, where you're just going to pray to God. And so that's for the last couple weeks we've been talking about that and as you pray think of your heavenly father as your literal father if he is you're the one who loves you that that all of his wrath and justice has all been satisfied so he's up there and he's got all the resources there are i mean he's infinite he's powerful he's all-knowing and he's ready and all he has for you is love compassion mercy and grace there's no paddle up there he burn it burnt the paddle there's no no ju- justice waiting to come down on you all satisfied in Christ. He's just there waiting for you, wanting to talk to you, wanting to have a relationship with you. So keep spending at least that 10 minutes a day. But this time, add to that 10 minutes, not only the thought that you have an intimate, loving Heavenly Father waiting for you to talk to Him, but that all of your requests are all directed around God's name being hallowed, He being glorified in your life and the lives of others. You know, prayer is about giving God glory. It's not getting what I want, whatever I do or ask, Lord, whatever I think I need, whatever I think is best, whatever I reason to be with best. I know that my thoughts are not your thoughts that are as high as the heavens are above the earth. So your thoughts are above my thoughts that I don't know. And so, Father, I'm just going to pray to cap it all off, maybe at the beginning, Father, if it be your will, and then pray, and at the end, just say, but not my will, but yours be done. And just, I mean, Jesus even did that, right? Didn't Jesus do that in the garden when he was there, and he was agonizing in prayer, and he said, Father, take this cup from me yet. And then he just said, 
but not my will. Yours be done. And he shows us that great example that though Jesus was praying fervently that God would take this torturous crucifixion away from him, having to suffer and die, yet he submitted to the Father's will, and he then went willingly to the cross and suffered on that tree to bear our sins and die in our place, because that was God's will. The torture, the pain, the agony was God's will for him. And sometimes it's his will for you. And sometimes it's his will for me. So don't have your prayer all about your comfort, your pleasure, your health, your wealth. But have it always be directed that God would have his way. And then when you pray that way, then all of your prayers will end up serving the purpose God would want them to have. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were able to look at this text and just see how important it is, first of all, to know you as our Heavenly Father. Father, if there is somebody here who has not repented of their sins, Father, who is living in rebellion, uh, who may even know the gospel and may even regularly come to church, but in their heart, they know they don't love Jesus. They don't want him to come back. It terrifies them. They don't love his word, they don't really love his people, and they don't love his law. Father, I pray that you would break them, cause them to be humble. Father, help them to confess their sins, to just cry out and say, Lord, help me to turn from my sins because I know they will destroy me. And help me to follow Jesus and to give my life to Jesus and to receive him for as many as received him to them. He gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So, Father, make that happen in the lives of anyone here who doesn't know you. And for the rest of us, Father, I just pray that as we continue to pray, whether it's sending up little arrows, whether it's prayer group, whether it's private times in prayer, that we would always remember prayer is about you being glorified. And that, Father, whatever we can do in our lives to make that come about, that we would strive to bring it about as we ask you to bring it about. And that, Father, in doing this, our prayers would be a sweet aroma to you and that you would bless us for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.